We're all very concerned about the rise of Christian nationalism, anti-Semitism, anti-internationalism, demagoguery, uh, if not political violence in our own time. And a lot of the focus is on the conduct of Christians in the United States. Uh, We're not limited to only the U.S., but uh, we certainly bear uh, a great deal of responsibility for what has happened over just the last few years and the injury that it's done to population groups, uh, to the morale of our country and our social fabric, uh, but of particular concern to me and uh, to all of us in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute family is the damage this is doing currently to the witness of Christianity, uh, to the integrity of the gospel, uh, to the well-being of the church as the family of God. Well, today I talk with an authority on all of these matters, Victoria J. Barnett. Vicki served as director of the program on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum from 2004 to 2019. She was also one of the general editors of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works, the English translation series of Bonhoeffer's complete works, published by Fortress Press. She has taught, lectured, and written extensively about the role of different religious organizations during the Holocaust, with a particular focus on German Protestantism, uh, the international interfaith and ecumenical bodies, and the theologian and our namesake, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Her latest book is After Ten Years, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Our Times. Over the next uh, half hour, 40 minutes or so, I'll talk with Vicki about the history uh, of the church in Germany and what it might teach us about our own situation today in the United States. Vicki, thank you so much for joining me in this discussion today. It's nice to hear your voice, and I look forward to a time post-pandemic when we can sit together and enjoy one another's proximal company again. Yeah, thank, thank you for the invitation. Well, here we are on a subject matter that is both difficult and delicate, uh, and that is basically the corruption of religion by a political force. Mm -hmm. And in the context of your scholarship, I'd like to travel back uh, to 1920s, 1930s Germany, uh, during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism, and talk about uh, the German Christian or Deutsche Christen movement of that period. Uh, 
Could you help us just by uh, talking a little bit about what that was, its origin, its development over time, the place it had within Nazism, and then sure. maybe a little bit about its demise? Sure. I'll be, I'll be glad to. So the, the Deutsche Christen, the German Christian faith movement, um, may be the best documented uh, case study in these kinds of dynamics, the, the convergence of Christianity, nationalism, white supremacy. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very well-documented case study um, that a lot of people are looking to um, as they reflect on some of the issues we're facing today. Uh, the German Christian movement was officially founded in 1932. That is one year before the Nazis come to power. Uh, but it came out of the 1920s, so out of the interwar period in Germany. Um, and during that period, was um, there were many movements, uh, both Christian and non-Christian, that were sort of picking up on elements of um, Nazi ideology, anti-Semitism, nationalism, and sort of forming a, a theological narrative, if you will, that brought these things together. The Nazi party itself um, at its founding, which was in 1920, um, had, had had an article of um, about Christianity in its founding um, documents um, called the article on what it called positive Christianity. And what it basically said was that it supported a positive Christianity and went on to define that as a Christianity that was conformed to what it called Germanic mores. Um, it was explicitly anti-Semitic, explicitly nationalistic. Um, and so obviously a version of Christianity that would fit well within the Nazi agenda. And there were a number of people in the Protestant churches, particularly, who really embraced this as a sign that maybe the Nazi party was a good place for um, Christians to be. Um, and so in 1932, they formally found themselves. I'll add that there were a number of other movements during the 1920s that did this in different, took this in different directions. I mean, there were neo-pagan movements. There were other movements within both Catholic and Protestant churches. But the German Christian movement is the one that gains real traction. Um, I will add that, you know, Germany was 98% Christian. People were either members of the Roman Catholic Church or members of the German Evangelical Church, which was the church that came out of the Reformation. And about two-thirds of the Protestant, or about two-thirds of the population uh, were Protestant. That is, they were members of this German Evangelical Church, which is where you find the German Christians. And when the Nazis come to power in early 1933, um, for the German Christians, this is their chance to really shape the church in the way they think it should be shaped. That is in conjunction or in confirmation with um, national socialism. And this is what the Nazis are aiming for as well. Of course, they plan to Nazify every element of German society, including the churches. Um, and so there really is this coming together in early 1933 of the Nazi ideology and the significant movement within German Protestantism. As I mentioned, this is one church. It's divided into a lot of regional churches, uh, but it's the church to which two-thirds of German Protestants belong. And so the German Christians were not some marginal outside group. Uh, they were very much in the mainstream of the Protestant 
church and Protestant theology. Um, some of the leading advocates for this position or this ideology uh, were renowned scholars, uh, people like Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althaus, um, who were you know, recognized internationally in their fields. Um, and you had a number of leading members of the German Protestant Church, including bishops and clergy, who quickly signed up for this movement in 1933. At its peak, um, there were about 18,000 clergy in the German Protestant Church nationwide, and about a third of them in 1933 signed up for the German Christians. That is, they became members. So that's a significant sector of the Protestant pastorate. Um, and they, they were really pushing this, um, both this nationalization of the church into a Reich church under the new Nazi regime, but uh, more significantly, they were already pushing theology and understandings of what it meant to be Christian in that direction. So with the German Christians, you had a wide range of views um, in terms of how far they were willing to go in revising Christianity. Uh, but the more extreme among them wanted to get rid of the Hebrew scriptures. They claimed that that was a Jewish book and that a true German church would not have Jewish texts in it. Um, they had a new conception of Jesus as sort of a so-called Aryan hero. Uh, they wanted to rewrite liturgies and hymns and really conform, um, you know, the, the, Christian practices and liturgies and preaching to the new Nazi agenda. Um, and this came out of a movement of a larger sensibility that emerged during the 1920s that um, a church should reflect the national ethos and national ethnicity of its members. So this was part of what was driving both Nazi ideology, obviously, and very much um, the German Christians, that they wanted a so-called Germanic church for the German people. Uh, that meant that, for example, you couldn't have um, you know, people who had Jewish ancestry convert to become members of the backlash against this came over the course of 1933 because of the extremism. Um, you had a group that emerged that would be called the Confessing Church, um, which uh, pushed back against these notions of an ethnicized and nationalistic church. Um, and, and the Confessing Church took its name because they said they were based upon the confessions, not upon these worldly ideologies. Um, but all of these different people existed within German Protestantism. They're all members of the same church. And that church never splits apart over the course of the 1930s. They all stay in the same church. They battle it out. And over the course of time, what you find um, is that, you know, the more extreme German Christians are kind of out there, but you get a lot of people who begin to move back toward the middle. Uh, the same is true for the confessing church. Um, and what that means, since this stays within the same institutional church, is that, you know, people are basically conforming to national socialism as time passes. Um, a lot of the the church, not just the German Christians, um, were strongly nationalistic. They were strongly anti-Semitic. Um, so there was widespread support for the Nazi regime within the Protestant church as a whole. Um, the, German, the significance of the German Christians was that they really wanted to sort of Nazify German theology. Um, so it's a, um, as I said, it's a case study in both the, you know, ideological um, 
um, you know, sort of the way in which Christian theology can be driven by ideological reasons and, and um, change. Uh, but it's also not an, a, a clean cut story. It's not, you know, sort of one side against the other, uh, battling it out. And the issues of nationalism and, and anti-Semitism um, remain problems th- throughout the German Protestant Church, throughout the Nazi era. Um, that's, I, I'm giving you a sort of a complex answer to a complex question, but um, that's that's the background. Well, I really appreciate you giving us that fulsome treatment, because uh, if there's a lesson here, it's certainly that uh, there's nothing about this that is simple or simplistic or binary, uh, black and white. In fact, I've got to tell you, when you mentioned Gerhard Kittel, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I'm an American evangelical, and I was trained in evangelical institutions and in the Bible colleges and seminaries that I attended, there was sort of a rule that you went to Kittle on everything. Uh, you didn't prepare a sermon. You didn't uh, write a paper. You didn't do an exposition of a text without checking Kittle. If it was New Testament, you went to Kittle and the Dictionary of New Testament Theology. No one ever told me he was a Nazi. Yeah, uh, yeah, And I think that's important to know, maybe not, you know, it doesn't necessarily damage his product. Uh, and, and I was, I was actually surprised uh, in reading Bonhoeffer that Bonhoeffer consulted Kittle. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, again, nothing, nothing simple here. I, I do want to ask you specifically about uh Paul Althaus, Emanuel uh, Hirsch, uh, and Kittle. Uh, they were, uh, you know, well-known authorities, uh, biblical scholars, theologians, and but they seemed to be swept into this movement rather quickly. Am I correct in that assessment, or did they agonize over it? Um, no, I don't think they agonized. And I think this is an important point. And I, I, you know, I, I think I would sort of give some nuance to the statement that, um, you know, they, they, they're, they're still, I mean, the Kittle Dictionary of the New Testament is still in theological libraries across the United States. Um, it's not, though, that it doesn't affect our reading of their work, because I think, you know, when we read them today, we recognize um, that they were ideologically, you know, with national socialism, and that has to fit into how we read them. But I think this is an important thing to say about the Nazi movement as a whole, which is that, you know, it comes to power with the support of a wide sector of, um, you know, the German elite, um, certainly university professors, um, you know, people in the civil service, and certainly in the realm of Protestant theology. As you know, Althaus, Kittle, and Emanuel Hirsch are, you know, three of the leading lights of their day. They're internationally known. Um, and yet, you know, Kittle is openly anti-Semitic throughout the 1930s um, and well into the 1940s. Uh, Paul Althaus is, you know, the leading Luther scholar of his day, um, but is the man who in 1933 announces that Adolf Hitler is a gift from God to the German people. And Emanuel Hirsch, of course, you know, is thoroughly part of it from the beginning to the end. Um, So it's, you know, this is part of the reality um, of 
you know, for of Nazi of the history of Nazi Germany for um, Christians, and I would say especially for Protestants, um, is that you have this this intermingling of um, theology of nationalism of you know anti-Semitism that doesn't start in 1933. I mean, in many ways, you know, their their worldview is shaped by the long history of the Christian alliance of power um, in Western history. So, and throughout, you know, the history of Europe. Um, so it's, it, you know, it, it's an instructive part of one, one reason that this is such an instructive history is it confronts us um, with, I would say, the shadow side of, you know, the history of Christianity itself and the ways in which, especially in the history of the West, it's been so often converged with, you know, political agendas, with political power, and the church finds its place in this world. Um, and part of the part of the conflict within the German Protestant Church over the course of the 1930s um, was on these issues. I mean, the German Christians wanted a Lutheran church that was conformed and, you know, a pillar of the Nazi state. Um, there were voices from within the church that countered that and that viewed that as a distortion of Christian teachings. Uh, but as I noted, they all stayed within the same church. And you actually have clergy in the confessing church who are members of the Nazi party, who are anti-Semitic. So, um, you know, it's not that there's one side fighting for the good and one side fighting for, for evil, uh, but rather that this this is a conflict that opens up, I would say, all the fault lines uh, within the history of Christian theology. Well, I'm glad you, you bring that up uh, because, you know, I've wondered sometimes, of course, what happened in the Nazi era in Germany is a particularly grotesque expression of the corruption, the co-optation of religion, uh, the politicization of a church. But it it's not limited to Nazi-era Germany. Uh, no. It finds its expression in many other places. And, and I wonder if you've had thoughts, as, as I have, or what your thinking is, just about the parallels, for example, in our own time and place here in the United States. We have a lot of international listeners, so I'm going to speak of my place yeah. and my time. Um, you know, I often hear among my colleagues and in my circles, uh, we speak about the American evangelical church. You know, you're you're both an historian, but you're also theologically trained, uh, and you've been very active in the church. Uh, what about that idea of, of a nation, a culture, a geopolitical entity like the United States taking first position when we say the American church. Was that a problem in Germany, that the fact that there was even the idea of a German church as compared to, say, a global church that transcends geopolitical boundaries, transcends language, culture, and so forth? Is that an element to be considered yeah, that, here? Yes. I mean, that that's actually a, a key 
line of division that opens up by the late 1920s. Um, so yes, you had these movements not only in Germany but across Europe, and I would add in the United States, um, of you know sort of these um, Christian movements that aligned themselves with a national identity that was then defined in religious language, and so you really find a convergence of Christianity and nationalism, which is directly opposite to a notion of an internationalist church. I mean, the German Christians by the late, you know, the people who became leaders in that movement by the early 1930s are attacking the Protestant ecumenical movement, for example, because they view that as an internationalist force, and that goes against uh, the notion of a, a church with a firm national identity. So you find people like Emanuel Hirsch in the early 1930s arguing that, you know, we need a Germanic church that reflects German values. We don't need these, you know, internationalist movements uh, that water everything down. Um, so so that that's definitely part of the, the mix. In terms of analogies, um, I would say that there are certainly, when you look at the process by which uh, people make an ideological journey and become really complicit in a greater evil, um, which is, you know, that's part of the case study of the German Christians is watching them throughout the 1930s as they get deeper and deeper and deeper into national socialism. Um, I think that process, because you're looking at human behavior, plays out in similar ways um, in totalitarian settings. I mean, the process by which people, you know, take one step after another and get really involved in something much bigger and then end up justifying it um, is, is a similar one. Um, in terms of our own, you know, the state of um, Christianity in the United States today and the ways in which it has become politically um, active and the whole phenomenon of, you know, people now are really looking at Christian nationalism in the United States. Um, I think we would be better off looking at American history and our, at our own history. I mean, there's certainly elements in the German example that are instructive, but there is a long history in the United States going back to our founding of, you know, Christian leaders justifying um, the slaughter of Native Americans, of justifying slavery, of justifying, you know, various things, of justifying lynchings. Um, in the 1920s in this country, you had a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, which identified itself as a Christian uh, movement. In the 1930s, you've got a number of right-wing Christian movements that come up that, that are inspired by national socialism. I mean, they really sort of see what's happening in Nazi Germany as an example to follow. Uh, but you have you know, leaders like Father Charles Coughlin, the Catholic radio preacher, um, who found something called the Christian Front and publicizes, you know, has a publication. So we have our own history of these kinds of elements that are very much linked, I would say, to um, issues of, of race and of white supremacy in our history. Um, and one of the things that I've thought a lot about in the past four years is, you know, the extent to which, um, you know, we, or I guess I, I would say I grew up sort of thinking that there was a slow movement in the direction of progress on these issues. Um, I think you know, we have to now recognize that it's much more complicated than that, that there is, that these 
you know, these elements in our understanding of Christianity and our, and our own national history um, don't ever go away. They're always there. And so there's this ongoing tension um, that right now is really, you know, is, is intensifying about this. Um, so there are similarities, I would say, to the rhetoric and some of the ideology of the German Christians, but this is part of our history. Um, and I think we should be really looking at that. You know, as you talk about our history here, uh, what came to mind as you were narrating that was, um, you know, the tension within the evangelical Protestant churches of the colonial period over uh, the struggle for independence. For example, you know, uh, I have to remind my own colleagues that one of the progenitors of modern evangelicalism, uh, John Wesley of Methodist fame, yeah. one of the great evangelists celebrated within Protestantism, but certainly within evangelicalism, uh, referred to uh, the movement towards independence from Great Britain as the American lunacy. Mm -hmm. uh, he saw it as seditious, as an insurrection, uh, even a violation of Romans 13. So there were great uh, tensions, uh, even over that element, you know, while today in uh, groups like the Black Robe Regiment and others who sort of romanticize this support for uh, the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War, uh, by early, you know, colonial church leaders, pastors and others, uh, some of whom are said to have carried muskets under their robes and all the rest of it. But anyway, whatever that is, uh, that wasn't, uh, a, 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 you know, a universal uh, position to take uh, in support of even the revolution. But of course, there was a very patriotic uh, wing of the church uh, that saw that as a divine uh, struggle a movement uh, uh, on God's side, if you will, mm -hmm. not to mention what happened during the Civil War, etc. Uh, well, going back to the, to the German story, when the war ends, what, what was done there to reclaim the integrity of the church? Uh, it had been damaged by all of this, of course, um, and was it successful? Was the church, the Protestant church, or what uh, technically is the evangelical church of Germany, uh, was it able to reclaim its spiritual, moral, social integrity after the war? Um, so that's a complicated question. <laughs> I would say that it's – and I would say it's complicated because I don't know if it's possible to do that in one move. And so in the German case, that didn't happen. I mean, so this – in the German case, I would say what you have is a process over the decades that continues to the present time of different voices in the church addressing this. Um, there was, in the case of Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany was defeated. Um, the Allies occupied Germany for a time. There was a process of denazification. Uh, the leading Nazis were put on trial. Um, you know, Hitler had killed himself. So you do have 
a more clear-cut situation in the case of Nazi Germany than you do in many similar instances. And you do have the church issuing in the summer of 1945 or late summer of 1945, the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt in which the Protestant Church of Germany issues a statement whereby it repents that it did not do enough to withstand national socialism. Um, it says nothing at all about the murders of the Jews. It says nothing about uh, their own complicity. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag, but it's there. Um, and the, with that, the German Protestant Church reconstitutes itself. It tries to become institutionally what it was in 1933. There's kind of a rush to get things back in place. Um, which in many cases prevents a more honest reckoning with the history. And I would say that for the first decades after 1945, what you have is the rise of a hagiography. I mean, the church, the, all these church leaders portray themselves as, been, as having been much more heroic than they were in fact. Um, what begins to change that is not a movement from within the church, uh, but the development of a solid historiography. <laughs> in which you have historians who are not church historians um, going into the records and documenting what exactly happened and really putting the facts out um, to correct the hagiographic picture that, that the German church people wanted. Um, you know, a perfect case study is the work of a man named Wolfgang Gerlach, who did his dissertation during the 1960s. He did it on the confessing church and the anti-Semitism in the confessing church. Uh, he wrote that dissertation at a time when many of these people were still alive, the people he was writing about. Um, and so it didn't pass his committee <laughs> the first time mm -hmm. around. It eventually did. Uh, but it wasn't published in, the, in Germany until the late 1980s. Um, I mean, this was a book that this was a work that really showed the extent to which the confessing church had been just as anti-Semitic as the rest of the church. It was not a group of heroes fighting on behalf of the Jews, which is what many of them wanted to portray themselves as. Um, and I translated that book in the 1990s. It was published in this country in the year 2000. But that book uh, prevented Gerlach from having an academic career. I mean, he didn't, you know, his dissertation didn't lead to, you know, an academic career. Um, and, and in fact, he went into the ministry. But it shows the way in which, you know, de getting the right, the correct history out there takes time. Um, another example I like to give is that um, the both the Catholic and the Protestant churches under National Socialism used forced labor in their institutions and institutions like monasteries and, and um, schools and whatnot. And this, when, during the Second World War, the German army, when it occupied territory, forcibly brought civilians back into the Reich and put them to work in factories. And they basically put them on the, on the employment market for free. And so farms and factories and households and churches, anybody who wanted workers, you know, got you know, applied to the um, ministry to get the employment ministry to get people. In, and they, these are people who were not there of their own free will. They weren't paid. Um, and so you actually had monasteries and convents and church hospitals um, who had this forced labor. And that was true of both churches. Only in the year 2000 did the churches acknowledge that this had happened. 
That's 55 years after <laughs> the end of the war. And the only reason they acknowledged it was you begin to have historians who got into the documentation and really showed what exactly had happened and the extent. Um, so it's not um, a um, you know a pleasant picture of how the churches address their own history. Uh, but I would say that over the decades it came because you know historians showed uh, the extent to which you know, the churches, both churches had, had been complicit. Um, and the works that have been done on the confessing church and on the German Christians um, are in the same light. I mean, Robert Erickson's study of the theologians who supported the Nazis came out in the 1980s. Um, and so all of these pieces of the puzzle give us a much more honest picture of what happened in the church. Um, and I think that that's part of the necessary process of history to get back to our own case that, you know, we're now taking a much harder look at the history of white supremacy in this country and the ways in which it has converged with white Christianity, um, not just evangelical Christianity, but I would say across the, you know, across the spectrum. Um, and that's the that's necessary if we're going to have the conversations we need to have. You have to have that honest, hard look at history out there. And that's forever vigilant. Uh, I suppose, uh, well, I'll betray my own theological biases here, but uh, as long as there are human beings, we're vulnerable uh, to backsliding into this. And it is a constant work. Uh, I, I will say, you know, I find even more instruction in that aspect that how long it took and that it's continuous and unfinished. Yeah. Because it suggests that this will not be fixed easily or quickly or ever permanently. Uh, that's part of the reality of this. And, and demands constant attention and vigilance and confession, admission, that yeah, this well, is true of us. I, yeah, and I would also add to that, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, one of the things that, you know, forces the dynamic in the case of the aftermath of Nazi Germany um, is the clarity of the voices of the victims, um, that, that, you know, they... The, the alibi function doesn't work when you when you listen to people who were there and know exactly what happened. Um, and, and the same, I would say, is true in our own case in which um, I really feel right now as a white Christian that we need to be hearing the voice of the black church. Um, this isn't something we will do on our own because if we were to have done it on our own, it would be done by now. I mean, that this the honest confrontation with our history comes from honestly confronting the reality of that. Um, and that, that this is, you know, I, th I would say this is also a dynamic one sees in post-war Germany over time, uh, that, you know, the honesty comes as the history, the true history, historical record is laid out. Yeah, just recently, uh, I had a long conversation with a longtime friend and colleague, a leader in the black church, who said to me, you know, I'm getting a little tired of hearing uh, white church leadership talk now of the American dream, while our people have lived mostly the American nightmare. Yeah, yeah. 
stark difference in his experience, even as a Christian and as a church leader, yeah, yeah. than my experience would be. Well, and I think that that's the key, Rob. I mean, I that that you know, when as white Christians we recognize that we have lived and worshipped and thrived in a in a situation that has oppressed and victimized and horribly violated the lives of of our black brothers and sisters, that 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 means we need to recognize that we were living with an illusion. Um, and that we need to confront that illusion and really honestly recognize, you know, where we really are. Um, and I think more than ever, given what's going on, you know, in the world around us um, in this country, that that we're we need to face this now because this is never, you know, we're going to continue to um, wrestle with these kind, this kind of violence unless we seriously address it. And that means recognizing the reality that we've been part of. Well, in the work you've done in the past and uh, your contribution today, Vicki, uh, I know you retired recently from one aspect of your uh, professional service, but uh, uh, and I know how you spend your retirement, which is hardly rocking on the front porch. I mean, uh, I I know a few retirees who've spent uh, some of their retirement hours and days and weeks, months, translating Karl Barth from the German. Bravo <laughs> on that. But I'm I think to stay busy. What's that? I'm trying to stay busy. Yes, indeed. Uh, and the demand on you is great. And that's why I appreciate so much your spending time in this conversation. If you were uh, to suggest, you know, some helps that are out there, of course, your own titles. I keep your volume for the soul of the people, Protestant protest against Hitler literally over my shoulder every day working in my study and I consult it uh, regularly uh, as well as some of your other works. Uh, Where can folks go? We have pastors, we have church leaders, we have scholars and others uh, who listen to this podcast. If they want to go somewhere uh, to explore this further, both German history and maybe even more importantly, the more general topic of nationalized, politicized religion. Uh, do you have some recommendations where yeah, where they um, might go? Yeah, so um, the, the standard work on the German Christians is a book by Doris Bergen called Twisted Cross. Very good study. And then, of course, there's Robert Erickson's book, Theologians Under Hitler, which looks at these theologians we've been talking about who, um, you know, helped Nazify their their church. Uh, There's another more recent book by um, a scholar named Mary Solberg uh, called A Church Undone, which is actually a compilation of her translations of German Christian documents, including sermons. I also have it over yeah, my that's, shoulder. That's, that's a that's a good book. I mean, if people are looking for 
um, to really sort of look and see what was actually being said at the time, uh, that's that's helpful. Um, I'll add that if you, if people go to the Holocaust Museum website um, and in the search field just type in German German churches, um, you'll come up with a whole list of links. Um, that include, you know, Holocaust encyclopedia articles and other resources. And so that's a good source to get, you know, a broader look at all of this. Uh, there's an awful lot of good work re really being done right now on Christian nationalism in the United States. Um, I, you know, I'm almost, I'm trying to think of a title right now, but if people just look you know, at the studies is a very good um, study that was put out this past year by Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead um, that, you know, gives a good view of the developments and, and where, where all these movements are. Um, and I'm, of course, forgetting other important titles, but, you know, this is the kind of thing people could Google. And there's there are a lot of very good, good books being written right now because it's a focus of many of us. There's even a Baptist group that's emerged recently that's doing excellent work uh, called Evangelicals Against Christian Nationalism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and others like them. Uh, and we'll list some of those uh, for our listeners. We'll list some links and we'll track those down. Vicky, uh, let me yeah, just if say. If I think of books, I might send you links. I, I'm just not thinking of things right now. Yeah, please do, and and we'll include that in. And I'll just mention that I did have a conversation with Bob Erickson um, on his book Theologians Under Hitler, which is a podcast. We'll pair it to this one, okay. so that you can listen to those together. And I hope to speak to him again. I know with your assistance, uh, Vicki, yeah. you're kind of the introducer there. So I appreciate that very much. And let me just say, you are a gift to all of us. You have been for a very long time. I read you doing my doctoral work. That's how I discovered you. And then through the International Bunhofer Society, which, by the way, it goes without saying, you are recognized as one of the premier Bonhoeffer scholars alive today, and I thank you for that good work, but most especially for the timeliness of your insights. We are in a very perilous, I would call it dangerous time, uh, and we need your help, and you have helped us greatly even in this conversation. You've helped us in print, and I know you're not done, uh, so thank you so very much uh, for helping us today. And we hope to keep up the conversation. Your, your friendship with uh, the Institute is deeply, deeply appreciated by all. So thank you, Dr. Victoria Barnett, uh, for all you are to us and uh, to the world at this time. I, I, that's not an overstatement. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very honored. Thank you for your kind words. And thank you for this, this conversation today. You're right. I think we're at a very important moment. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. It may not be the last time we tap you for such a conversation, but I promise you, not for a while. <laughs> so thanks, Vicki. Thanks so very much for spending the time. Yeah, thank you. Take care.